And hello, Dan Torres. Happy Monday to you. Happy Monday, Buzz. How was your weekend? My weekend was great, but I, I, I love, this is the time of the month that I just love it because it's first Monday and we get to talk to our um, dear uh, friend and incredible scholar, Bruce Miller. And also, I want to just promo the second half of the show. We're going to be talking with uh, Dr. Bernardo Sorge, who is um, a sociologist. He has been a visiting professor in many European, North American, and Latin American universities. He's authored over 30 books, and we're going to talk to him uh, about the what The Guardian calls the uh, grotesque and failed assault on the Brazilian democracy. Uh, I hope, Dan, that you're going to ch chime in. I will that definitely chime in. Yeah, of course you are. Uh, as a Brazilian, you'd be... It'd be a shame I actually you... followed it and uh, called my family who was in Brazil unaware of the events. So I was informed they were unaware of what was happening. They were unaware. They were in their own little worlds and they were like, oh, what's going on? And I'm like, let me explain to you right now. So, well, I don't know if you know this, but according to uh, The Guardian, um, Jair Bolsonaro, the former Brazilian president, who I think these rioters were in support of, he's been hospitalized, according to his wife, in Florida. So we will see about that. But meanwhile, speaking of a government that really needs some help, we are here with Bruce Miller. Hello, Bruce. Hey, Buzz. Hey, Dan. Happy New Year. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I was asking you, how long do we keep saying that? Why? Well, I haven't seen you in 2023. So That's right. And it's always a pleasure to see you. Always is. So what's on your plate today? Well, I thought that we, we might talk a little uh, about a, a, a statute, a new law that Congress passed. They stuck it onto the big bill that they enacted right before Christmas that funded the government for a while, you know, potentially holding off the next effort to defund and shut it down. But they included um, an amendment, a big amendment, to a very old law called the Electoral Count Act of 1887. This very old law was instrumental in the scheme hatched by people like uh, John Eastman and Kenneth Cheeseborough, who were Trump's sort of rump legal advisors in connection with the coup. And although there's really nothing in the old law, the 1887 law, uh, that supported the coup, they could find ambiguities that they could twist um, and as, use as lawyers, to argue. As we always do, right? Exactly. That, for example, uh, Mike Pence, as vice president, had the authority to disregard any electoral votes uh, as he saw fit. Oh, and or that state legislatures could disregard the results of the elections in their states and appoint electors. Well, this got the attention uh, of small d Democrats of both parties in our Congress, and they made the wise decision to try to fix the Electoral Count Act of 1887 to shore it up uh, so that it couldn't be manipulated this way uh, again. The reason we have this law is because of an even older presidential election, the Hayes-Tilden electoral debacle in 1876, that brought about as uh, the end of Reconstruction, as most things do in, in the United States history. It all goes back to race. 
um, and and so does uh, the existence of this statute. There were competing electors in the 1876 uh, election, and uh, in the end, uh, uh, the Republican electors won out, uh, and they won out by agreeing to end Reconstruction. But it was a mess for months and months. And the 1887 statute was an effort to set some rules for how Congress deals with contested elections. Why does Congress get to deal with contested elections? Because of the 12th Amendment to the Constitution, which provides that if neither candidate, if no candidate gets a majority of the electoral votes, the House of Representatives decides who's president. This act uh, is designed to describe how uh, Congress uh, ought to operate, how the House ought to operate when it does that. And it has three or four really good and important provisions. The most important by far is that it says for the first time that when the state legislatures decide on the method by which the president is going to be elected in their states, a power they have under the Constitution, they have to set the rules before the election. And they're stuck with the rules that they make before the election. Who would have thought anybody <laughs> could imagine that they could set the rules afterwards, except for John Eastman mm -hmm. and Donald Trump? This act, this new act, uh, passed on December 23rd, makes clear that the states have to set their rules before the election um, and that they're stuck with those rules. They can't change them after the fact. That is, is exceedingly important. Set, uh, yeah, go ahead, Buzz. Well, this, this uh, speaking with Professor Bruce Miller, this is first Monday. This kind of um, deals with the architecture of our government. It does. And Congress, usually the architecture is laid out in the first seven articles of the Constitution. Um, and in several of the amendments, I think of the 27 amendments, 17 of them involve voting rights of one way or another. But um, this, this is really Congress saying, hey, this is, there's no ambiguity in what we're trying to say here. A vice president may not make a unilateral decision. Well, that's the second direct provision. The first provision is that the state's rules have to be set uh, in advance and can't be changed after the election. Second one is 12th Amendment provides that uh, the uh, uh, election, electoral votes are presented to Congress and are opened by the vice president. And this new uh, amendment says that's all that the vice president does. He opens the electoral votes. They then shall be counted, but he doesn't have the power to decide which ones will be counted and which won't. So that is, is provision number two, no further argument that the vice president has anything but a ministerial role. It that still is astonishes duty. me when I, I learned, and you were a professor for, what? 42 years. There you go. A lot of minds you've nurtured and sometimes wrestled with over more than four decades. People seem to, for reasons I'm not blaming them for they forget that what was at issue there with that ceremonial mike pence uh electoral function runs to the very heart we are not a democracy we call ourselves a democracy we're a representative democracy we hire other yeah. people to speak on our behalf yes. and if that is scuttled if that is corrupted yes. 
how can we call ourselves a representative democracy? Yeah, we, this is it, right? We, yeah, this is it. This is the this is this this sort of machinery or structure is what allows uh, all of us to say we are a constitutional republic. Okay. Conservatives love to say that, um, and 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 they're probably right. I wish the Constitution were much more democratic than it is, but what this does is preserve the aspects uh, of our republic that are indeed democratic. And just just for clarification, the January 6th committee report, which I'm actually reading, mentioned that John Eastman said that the vice president, Mike Pence, had this power to try to subvert the counting or send the, the votes back to the specific states, Arizona. But according to John Eastman, only Mike Pence in this one instance had this opportunity. Neither Al Gore nor this Kamala Harris have this opportunity. Yeah, so just, just, just to let you know what kind was, of was, advice was, was being was, spread uh, in the White was, House. It was just uh, he. Just this one time. Just this, just this one, just one time, time and and of for course, Mike Pence. We, we have heard that just this one time language before. Bush versus from Gore. Bush against Gore. Supreme Court decision giving Bush the election in 2000 at the late we specifically 2000. said it's only this only election. Only good, one ticket, one train, um, uh, only. Despite what the Constitution says, we're going to thwart the state's yes. right yes. to choose how it chooses its electors yeah, just exactly. this one time. Exactly. So the third thing that this statute did that's also very good is that it altered what the 1887 version said was needed in order to trigger within Congress an examination of the electoral votes that are presented to them. The 1887 Act says that if one member of Congress and one senator contest the electoral votes from any state, those votes are now deemed contested. And each house must recede into a separate meeting. We saw that happen on January 6th and decide by majority vote uh, whether to accept those electoral votes or not. The trigger is now changed from one in each house to one-fifth of each house, uh, which makes it much, much harder to challenge electoral votes. Um, and very, very difficult to challenge them frivolously, as, as was done on January the 6th. How many court cases did they lose? Was it 61? They, 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 did, they, did, lose, they did lose 61. Yeah, um, and, and, uh, I think one won. There was one, one case. One had a, had a, partial, uh, victory. a partial victory. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's number three. The fourth one is a, is a little subtle. You remember that one of the things uh, that Eastman argued that we learned during the January 6th uh, hearings was uh, that uh, if you could get Congress just to decide that certain electoral votes were in doubt, not necessarily changed, but couldn't be awarded, then they wouldn't go to either side. But somebody still has to have a majority. And so if you could strip enough of the 306 that Biden had away from him, uh, he might get below that 270 that was needed to be a, a majority. And then if nobody had a majority, the House would decide the election. This does away with that by saying, look, if, if Congress does decide to reject some electoral votes, the majority requirement goes down by just that same number that they've stripped away so that it's a majority of the votes cast as opposed to 270 if 
votes are placed in doubt. All of these things make mischief much, much less likely in the future. Can you give me an example of what you just said, the last, yeah, last yeah. point? So, is there a way? The election was 306 Six. to 232. Yeah. yeah. Electoral votes. The electoral, electoral votes, votes was three, 306 yeah. to 232. Um, uh, that's a total of 538. Mm -hmm. 270 is the majority that's required mm -hmm. if 538 are cast. Mm -hmm. Suppose uh, a, a total of, uh, uh, well, uh, 35, let's make it 40. Okay. electoral votes, states' electoral votes totaling 40, mm -hmm. are deemed by Congress to be in doubt, and all 40 of those were from states that were won by Biden. Okay. That would dip Biden's total from 306 down to 266. Mm -hmm. He'd still be ahead of Trump, 266 to 232, right. but he would now have less than 270. Right. Does he have a majority or not? Actually, nobody knew the answer to this question because it's genuinely ambiguous mm. under the 12th Amendment, what counts as a majority. Mm -hmm. This act says the majority, if there's less than all of them being counted, the majority is a majority of those that are counted. So mm. what that would, would do is that it, would, it, would, uh, it wouldn't permit stripping electoral votes away from states to help very much. Right. Because uh, the majority uh, required would go down by a corresponding amount. By a corresponding amount. And, okay. and that, uh, that also, I so, think, is, is, is uh, so, a, a useful change. So if I understand this correctly as a non-lawyer yeah. here, uh, it makes it very hard to kick back the electoral count um, back to the states to have the states decide the, the, it, it, it the does. majority, right? It does. And Dan, you actually have put your finger on another provision, may, maybe not as prominent, but e maybe equally important. And that is it confirms election day as the day that the uh, electors have to be uh, selected. Mm. And it requires the governors of each state to certify the results that, that uh, come in on election day so that we should have only one slate rather than two in the future. Mm. It's an effort to pin it down and make it more difficult to challenge. Mm. Now, uh, this, is, this, this act is far from perfect. And it, it can't be perfect because of our Constitution. Maybe we can talk about that after the break. Yeah. I'd love to talk about that. And also about people sometimes are just turned off because it sounds like the complexity yeah. sort of uh, in its rush. Yeah. Uh, it loses the purpose, which is people should be voting in those people that they want to lead. Oh, that's them. right. And we're going to talk about that and the Constitution with Bruce Miller. Always a pleasure First Monday this year, because of the holiday, is on the second Monday, but that's okay. We'll be right back after these messages. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. What do the origins of Trump and Trumpism teach us about what the future is likely to hold? Please join us when we speak with the author of Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism, and What Comes Next. Bradley Onishi will be our guest Tuesday at 9 o'clock. Get in on the conversation. Bill Newman. 
weekdays at 9 and again at 5. WHMP, news, information, and the arts. Right in your town, maybe even in your neighborhood, an immigrant is building a new life, trying to find their way, all while learning a new language. The International Language Institute offers free English classes for immigrants and refugees, for true beginners and others, like students in our Bridge to College and Careers program. One of the nation's top language schools is right here, with free English classes for immigrants and refugees. The International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. We are talking random whites. Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. This is from a company called La Pere, Gros Monsang. Gros, apparently, when you see it written, it looks like you're drinking something called Gros Monsang. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's Gros. In the past, has mostly been relegated to bulk wine or distilling grapes for brandy. Petit Monsang, which I think means like little guy, and Gros Monsang means big guy. It almost has like a dessert wine feel to it. It's susceptible to botrytis, so they do make sweet wines. This tastes like it almost might have that, which is like... It's essentially, they call it Noble yeah, Rock, it, which is my next yeah, band name. So Don't great, steal it. We, we, so mentioned, weird. <laughs> we mentioned it was a brandy grape, and this wine does taste like a brandy. Yeah. Drink this before dinner. Maybe drink it after Because dinner. it's a brandy-ish kind of feel yeah, to it. This yeah, is a unique it's wine. very different. 1899, it is organic grapes and certified organic. What's the name of this one again? La Perre. Find your favorite wine and your next favorite wine at State Street. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And we're back with First Monday with uh, Professor Emeritus Bruce Miller. You were talking about the electoral um, count uh, statute that just uh, was appended as an amendment to the big budget bill at the end of the year. Um, And you said that there's more we should talk about, particularly in its constitutional context. Yeah, yeah. Uh, This sounds like a very good statute. But like all federal statutes, um, it is susceptible to judicial review. Uh, that's uh, both, uh, uh, I, I, I suppose, uh, the great virtue and, and the great danger of an independent judiciary. And our current independent judiciary um, has shown itself to be remarkably dangerous to the cause of democracy. Not that independent. Uh, yeah, well. Ideological. I, I, ideologically, yeah, certainly not. Uh, there is uh, some chance, uh, in my view, a reasonably good chance that some of these reforms, maybe even most of these reforms, could, uh, in uh, an appropriate uh, presidential contest, be declared unconstitutional by our current Supreme Court. Mm. Uh, For example, the court could easily hold that Congress cannot... say anything to the state legislatures about how they set up their presidential elections. Under the independent state legislature doctrine, which we've talked about and which in the currently pending case Moore against Harper is in front of the Supreme Court, an extreme version of that doctrine holds that it's the state legislatures and in the case of presidential elections, only the state legislatures have constitutional authority to decide how votes are going to be cast. And if they want to change them after the election, so be it. They can do it. Uh, I read Rehnquist's uh, concurring opinion in Bush against Gore to stand for that proposition. So I don't know if there's five votes for that, but there's probably at least a couple. I'm not sure what you said was clear to all listeners. So regardless of what the people voted for... A state legislature could 
change who gets the electorate. Could. At least the Supreme Court could hold that, and they would have constitutional language that gives state legislatures the power to set the rules for presidential elections in their own states, gives them the power to do that. That could be construed to rule Congress out. And that that basically means a state like Nevada, let's say, votes for the Democratic uh, candidate in 2024. Then all of a sudden, let's say the Republicans are in control of that state and say, actually, the legislature, sorry, the the Nevada legislature, let's say, are controlled by Republicans. They decide to get together and say, yeah, you voted for the Democratic nominee, but we feel... Well, that we can change. This. Uh, the pretext would be there's yeah. reasons to doubt whether that vote Validity. was accurate, fair, yeah. uh, not riddled with fraud, et cetera, et cetera. So we're going to, to come in. Come in and it. choose the electors yep. that would vote for a Republican. That's right. That's right. And and, and, and it's possible the Supreme Court could say Congress cannot mess with that and that that's a power that under the Constitution they have. Second thing is similarly the court could say under the 12th Amendment – the House decides contested elections. Um, the House, faced with a contested election, can do whatever they want to do. The fact that there's some previous law, uh, like this new electoral count reform, uh, does not affect their power. Congress is Congress. Congress is given that power, and what an old Congress did cannot constrict what a current Congress might want to do. So the argument would be the House of Representatives has the authority if they see fit to simply disregard this statute because the Constitution gives them that power. Uh, A third proposition here is that uh, the federal courts, um, who of course heard a lot of cases, as you pointed out, Dan, in the previous election, uh, and it was a good thing they did, Uh, The Supreme Court could say, uh, if they were of a mind to, that the federal courts have no role um, in policing uh, elections. We never got to the point where the Supreme Court was asked to say that. But they could say, using a doctrine called the political question doctrine, that the text of the Constitution gives all the power here in contested elections to Congress and that courts can't supervise how they use it. I think that's a tough argument, but, uh, but it's one that could be made. The first two are formidable. And so th- this statute is about as good as it could have been, but our Constitution has little hooks in it, little catches that makes it impossible to enact a perfect statute uh, to govern uh, elections in our democracy. Just listening to that very succinct explanation, Bruce, I, I've got to be honest, it, no matter how many times these things assault my sensibilities, the hair on the back of my neck is standing up. I believe in the representative democracy concept, you know, the, the sort of liberal thinkers of uh, the Enlightenment created this thing where we choose our own leadership and we're, con- we're governed with the yes. consent of the governed. But yikes, it sure doesn't sound like a representative democracy when we have to articulate this stuff, it's a little bit better, as you say, but it's still, I just hate the Electoral Can, College, everything well, about it. I, I hate the Electoral College. Uh, I hate the power that the state legislatures have under our Constitution. That was there to protect the interests of the slaveholders, but look what it's used for now. Mm-hmm. Is there any hope, I wanted to ask both of you, uh, 
in the federal judiciary. I, I heard or saw an article that Biden has gotten a record number of judges through. Is there any truth to that? They've actually done a pretty good job in getting he, Biden uh, He is the nomination. first Democratic Party president mm -hmm. um, to really, well, since Carter, mm -hmm. to really care about who's appointed to the federal courts, to mm -hmm. really care, mm -hmm. to appoint good people mm -hmm. um, and to fight to make sure that they're confirmed. The answer to that is, Dan, you're right. We are seeing a significant change already in the lower federal courts as a result of, of Biden appointees. Uh, the, the, the proportion of uh, judges of color and of mm -hmm. female judges, mm. um, are, are, you know, is un unprecedented. Mm -hmm. um, um, and, and, but the most important thing is that neither Obama nor Clinton really cared all that much, didn't invest that much political capital in the judicial mm. branch. And mm. Biden, to his great credit, has. Well, he sees the, the, the current makeup and he knows that he has to change that. Yeah. Well, um, this conversation is so important to our future as a representative democracy. And as usual, Professor, uh, I'm educated by hearing the explanation. I read that it happened, but I didn't delve into it with the detail that you just have illuminated uh, it for us all. Um, we are going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking to Dr. Bernardo Sorge, uh, live from Rio de Janeiro, which is a place that is hopping. Hopping <laughs> is right. Bruce, thank you so much. You bet. Have a great, great year, please. Guys. Absolutely will. Can't wait to see you in, in February. Take care. All right, we'll be right back after these messages. Stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The West Springfield Police Department was sent to the area of 46 Daggett Drive for a pedestrian who was struck by a vehicle on Sunday at approximately 5.20 p.m. Police say the man was conscious and alert and was sent to a local hospital for treatment of his injuries. The pedestrian was wearing all dark clothing and was not using a crosswalk when the accident occurred. Police say no charges or citations against the driver are expected. The Massachusetts Department of Transportation is holding an information meeting tomorrow night to talk about a controversial proposal to build a roundabout on North King and Hatfield Streets. The state scrapped the last proposal after more than 50,000 people signed a petition in opposition over the project's impact on an archaeological site where evidence of an ancient indigenous village was discovered, according to the Gazette. MassDOT has since modified plans. The meeting will be held at 6.30 at Northampton City Council Chambers to update the public on the project. A new COVID-19 variant is fueling a surge in new cases lately. Experts say the latest spike mirrors what also happened around the holidays last year. Dr. Megan Harvey, an epidemiologist at Springfield College and the person in charge of the COVID dashboard for Northampton and East Hampton, says the latest strain is the most contagious yet. So anytime there's a new variant or subvariant that becomes dominant, by definition, it has to be more transmissible and more contagious than the one that came before. Otherwise, it can't outcompete it. A more reliable way of measuring community spread of the coronavirus is to test wastewater, which many communities are doing on the county level. For the rest of today, partly sunny, highs 40 to 44. Tonight, it'll be partly cloudy, overnight lows 24 to 28. And the other Tuesday, look for a mixture of sunshine and clouds, highs around 40. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. 
Hey, it's Jason with the Weather Channel and SnowCountry.com. This winter, there are now updated COVID-19 booster shots designed for recent Omicron variants. Learn more and schedule your updated vaccine booster at Vaccine.gov, sponsored by Pfizer and BioNTech. Well, there's nothing like a few solid days of constant snowmaking to get things moving back in the right direction at the slopes. We're seeing the benefits every day with smoother surfaces, deeper bases, and more trails opening. Well, we'll enjoy sunshine and decent temps, along with short lip lines to kick off a great week at the slopes. Berkshire East 15 runs, same for Jiminy Peak. They've got action till 10 p.m. every night at Jiminy Peak. Ski Butternut on three quarters of their trails. Wichusett with about two dozen. They're skiing till 9.30 every night. Ski Sundown Connecticut with action till 10, seven nights a week. Over a dozen runs there and about four dozen at Stratton in Vermont. Ski and ride like a beast at Vermont's biggest icon pass destination this winter. Killington Resort is home to the longest season in the East and the all-new K1 Lodge. Plan a visit today at Killington.com. Check out more at SnowCountry.com. I'm Jason Dean. Go out to eat, save 30%. Get a guitar or take lessons, save 30%. Pork chops, rug cleaning, hypnotherapy, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at WHMP.com. Want to support the kind of talk you hear on the afternoon buzz? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And you'll be supporting the local news, Valley Talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. When I was a kid, a bowl of cereal seemed incomplete unless it was topped with sliced bananas. And we knew where our bananas came from. They came from Chiquita. Our pineapples came from Dole. And our oranges came from Sunkist. We didn't think much about it, but we do now. We want food that hasn't spent a lot of time on a truck or in a processing plant. Around here, it's hard to miss the Local Hero label. Local Hero makes it quick and easy to identify food raised right here in Western Mass. Local Hero is part of CESA, Community Involved in Sustaining Agriculture. And Local Hero is just one of the things that CESA does to help Western Mass farms thrive. CESA helps build a strong local food system, working with farmers, stores, restaurants, so all of us have fresh local food choices. Look for the bright yellow Local Hero label and think about becoming a CESA supporter. Go to buylocalfood.org, find out what CESA does and why it's worth supporting, and bon appetit. Do you ever wish you could be a kid again? Big Brothers Big Sisters lets you take a break from the adult world for a few hours a week. Anyone can be a mentor. You'll have support and guidance from professional caseworkers like me. My name is Jess, and I'm a case manager, but I've also been a big sister with the program for almost four years. At first, I thought it would be hard to find the time, but spending time with my little quickly became one of the best parts of my week. When is the last time you went rollerblading or cooked s'mores over a campfire? Mentoring is fun, but it also makes a huge difference in a kid's life. Children who have good mentors do better in school, are more confident, and have better relationships with their peers. Nearly 200 kids in our area are currently waiting to be matched with a mentor, and most are boys hoping to find a big brother. Come in for an info session with me to learn more. Start something. Call 413-259-3345 and volunteer or donate 
to Big Brothers Big Sisters of Hampshire County today. For some kids, home isn't a safe place. And in these times, access to trusted adults like teachers and counselors is limited. I'm Kara McElhone, Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy Center of Hampshire County. Our mission is to prevent and end child abuse in our community by providing safety, healing, and justice. The Children's Advocacy Center is open in providing resources to children and caregivers throughout Hampshire County. Please visit us online at cachampshire.org or call 413-570-5989. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Hello and welcome back, those who were with us, and thank you for joining us, those who are just joining us. Um, it is extraordinary. I think that it was uh, Mark Twain who said, history doesn't repeat itself, it just rhymes with itself. So um, I think that there's some rhyming going on down in Brazil. It is uh, chilling and frightening that there was a storming of the Brazil's three branches of government's seat, the Supreme Court, the Congress, the Presidential Palace, in what has been described uh, by one envoy as a grotesque and failed assault on its institutions. Um, that's what the country's ambassador said to the United Kingdom as the troops moved in to break up the protest uh, camps that were set up by supporters of former President Jair Bolsonaro, uh, our understanding is he is in Florida. His wife says that he's hospitalized. Um, and the question, of course, for many of us, particularly in the wake of the two-year anniversary of January 6th, is whether or not this is an insurrection, whether or not it was a plan to, uh, for a coup um, over Brazil. And uh, we are so fortunate. We have with us uh, Bernardo Sorge. Dr. Sorge uh, received his PhD in sociology at the University of Rio de Janeiro. He's been a visiting professor here in North America at many European and Latin American universities, and he has authored over 30 books that are published in several different languages. He is there in Rio. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Dr. Bernardo Sorge. My pleasure. So, um, why don't you tell us from your uh, scholarly perspective, and you're there on the ground in Rio de Janeiro. This, of course, happened in Brasilia, uh, which is Brazil's capital. But tell us, tell us about what's going on and um, your, your thoughts about it. Thank you, Buzz. Uh, let's begin by saying that there are similarities between what is happening in Brazil and what did happen in the States. President Bolsonaro had President Trump as his example and guide. He basically did use uh, the same strategies. Uh, he has also Steve Bannon as a main strategist, and therefore is, there are similarities, undoubtedly. There are similarities also between the people that did participate in the capital assault and here in Brasilia, we are talking about extremists that don't accept 
democratic results that are ready to use violence to change the elections results. And therefore, there are similarities. Undoubtedly, you can even go beyond and think about processes that are today global of uh, confronting democracy and democratic values. And this is true. On the other hand, there are differences. What did happen in the capital was somehow an effort with a clear goal trying to uh, not to allow the Congress to approve the results of the elections. They were clearly under the, I would say, direct direction, orientation of the president. Here in Brazil, I think was a bit more grotesque in the sense that what did happen in Brazil, first of all, the president, ex-president, was in Orlando, he's still in Orlando, he left the country before the transfer of power. And uh, second, we don't have here, as there is in the States, a Republican Party in the state of denial. Most, if not almost all of the politicians that participated in the elections accepted the results of the elections. And the third factor here was the armed forces. The, in the state, there was no really the hypothesis of the armed forces participating in, the coup, in a coup of, of d'etat. In Brazil, it was the expectation, at least, of those radical extremists that the armed forces will join them. They didn't. In fact, when this happened, that is yesterday, there were not really social political forces in Brazil supporting any action. Eh? The president was overseas, the armed forces clearly decided not to participate in any attempt. The politicians either, they were not ready to do that, and therefore there were extremist groups attempting to do something without a strategy or clear goals. They really invaded with vandalism, destructions, at the same time not using the same level of violence that we saw in the capital. They were, they were no, basically there were not weapons there. And the results that they were defeated and they are today 1,500 people in prison in Brazil as the result of this attack. Therefore, you can speak somehow about an insurrection without insurrectional aims or strategy. Yeah? Mm. Uh, and uh, it was a sad moment for Brazil, but the final results, I believe, I would say there's also positive side most of the people, and I believe that most of the people that voted for Bolsonaro, uh, the president that was the candidate that was defeated, do not support what did happen yesterday. The country is not divided the way it was and continue to be in the United States. Therefore, I hope, I believe that there are going to be also positive consequences 
of uniting the country against the extremist groups that use violence, destroys the patrimony of the country, including works of art, important works of art that were destroyed, and who is going to pay is the taxpayer for all of this. Mm -hmm. Therefore, uh, I would say that in spite of the sad moment we lived, there are going to be also positive results, and being some similarities with the, what did happen with United, in the United States, the situation in Brazil is a bit different. And I do want to, uh, when we come back, we're going to take a break. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk about the reaction of President Lula da Silva, who has promised that they will, uh, there will be a strong uh, consequence, a strong sanction for those who participated. But I want to talk about what this means for the Brazilian democracy in the future, that people, as they did here, and I understand what you're saying, that here it seems to have been a more concerted effort, but people so violently uh, expressed uh, their um, unwillingness to accept the results of the election. We're going to take a break, and we're going to be back with Dr. Bernardo Surge live from Rio de Janeiro right after these messages. Stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. It's happening here in the Valley. We're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to, you know, elicit fear and power and control by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 101.5-1400-1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you get the best local and organic produce, a butcher shop, wine and cheese shop, fresh seafood, and hundreds of bulk herbs, spices, and more. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs and generate over $7 million in purchases from local farms and businesses. River Valley Co-op is your food hub, bringing you the best from around the valley and world while supporting your neighbors and local farmers. Shop River Valley Co-op in Northampton and East Hampton today. RiverValley.com. Co-op. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And we are back with Dr. Bernardo Sorge, live from Rio de Janeiro. We're discussing 
these uh, extremely unseemly and uh, upsetting events when all three branches of government, their physical seats, were uh, attacked by, I, I guess, 1,500 people are being held to have uh, participated in this. And uh, the professor was just explaining the difference between what he sees as a concerted effort um, here in the States with our then president, our defeated president, Trump behind it, and what appears, there's no evidence yet, that links this mob's outrage to what happened. I'm wondering, Professor, um, what do you think the long-term impact of this assault on all three branches on the Brazilian political picture will be? Uh, fair enough. Uh, to the, first of all, there were around 6,000 participants, and at this moment, 1,500 are held prison on the numbers, uh, at least 6,000 or around 6,000. Uh, on the long-term consequences, of course, long-term, we can't know. On the short terms, I would say that this, in the Brazilian case, is going to reinforce democracy. Uh, our situation is not similar in this sense to the United States. The vast majority of the population accepts the results of the election, not questioning the way these, those extremists were questioning. And, uh, and even the defeated president candidate didn't really question the results the way Trump did. He was ambiguous, but somehow accepted because his political base also accepted. The politicians, the political parties, people that were elected accepted the results. Mm -hmm. Uh, therefore, I think on the short term, the situation in Brazil, I, see, I am a bit more optimistic than in the States, where still a large proportion of the Republican Party supporters still has, have doubts about the elections. We have a very modern electoral system, and uh, I, most of the population has... Uh, uh, complete and uh, has quite credibility. And second, we don't have such an ideological divide the way there is at this moment in the United States. Uh, the future of demo Brazilian democracy, therefore, in one hand, is more fragile than the United States. The institutions are not as solid and historically implanted as in the States. At the same time, I would say that most of the population at this moment support the electoral system and democracy in Brazil. If you see even the numbers, probably it's even higher than in the States. Mm. Uh, of course, comparing those type of surveys can be always questioned, but even in the surveys, you will find a wide support and on the democracy, democratic institutions. On the middle term, democracy in Brazil will depend, of course, on other factors, on the capacity of government to decrease social inequality of improving health and educational systems and creating jobs, and especially jobs of good quality. Mm. 
and this is still the in Brazil, I would say, the most important question. You can say that even the states, because of other, there are also other factors, but still also they are behind the basic problem of democracy in your country. Professor, Professor, I, I had a question. I was actually watching uh, the events in Brasilia yesterday and in a Brazilian news. And uh, I was struck by the reaction of the police that was there to protect the buildings. It seemed like quite a few officers either didn't want to protect or felt outnumbered. Some weren't really reacting to it. And I was wondering if you could speak about the lack of security to the three buildings that were attacked? A very good question. And I must say that those are one of the questions that the international press didn't get it very clearly. We pick first of all, because this Brazil is a federated state, it's a federation. And therefore the police is state police, is not federal police. Uh, then, Therefore, the protection of those buildings were in the hand of the governor of Brasilia, which has a similar status to Washington, D.C. Uh, the state governor is a part of the Bolsonaro political group, and even more, his responsible for security was a minister of Bolsonaro and uh, therefore also sympathizer of the Bolsonarist groups. What it did happen exactly needs still to be clarified, but it looks like Brazilian government, Lula's minister, had contact with the governor saying there are Maybe we are going to have problems. Uh, on Saturday, 120 buses arrived with around 6,000 people in Brasilia, and clearly they were going to create trouble. And the governor and his uh, secretary of state said, don't worry, it's going to be under control. It wasn't. Eh? They didn't send enough people. It's true that the police, like the armed forces in Brazil, they are mostly supporters of Bolsonaro. This can explain some of the reactions or lack of reactions, but basically there were not enough police on the place to protect and therefore the people enter into the buildings without any reaction from the police. This is what did happen. Uh, as a reaction to that, the president of Brazil and his minister of justice declared federal intervention in the security of the state of Brasilia, therefore becoming now under jurisdiction of federal government. And they mobilized troops from the National Guard 
and now also from other states, policemen from other states, that are now responsible for securing those places. There is also a question mark about the exact responsibility of the armed forces, because in theory, also the safeguard of the Palace of Justice, of the Congress, and the House of the President also are responsibility of the armed forces. The armed forces, during all this process, in one hand, they didn't support the coup, but somehow they tried not to be an active participant. They accepted that part of those manifestants to stay in the space of the headquarters of the army. Therefore, there is, was a strong ambiguity, to say the least, of the armed forces, which is now is over. Of course, they are not accepting anymore those manif pro-Bolsonaro manifestants to stay in the headquarters of the armed forces. So, but they, of course, there was ambiguity, to say the least, yep. and the responsibility. As the consequences also of this, today, the justice, the Supreme Court of Brazil declared that the governor of Brasilia can't stay anymore in his, his post. power for 30, uh, for 90 days, is that correct? For 90 yes, days. for 90, 90 days. days at least, of yeah. course, it depends on the Congress and yeah. other actors, yeah. but this is what's going to happen, is happening at this moment. Right? Well, I can't thank you enough for illuminating for us. As so many of us here respect, admire, and rely on the wonderful uh, political and cultural uh, landscape of our sister country in Brazil. So many of our friends are Brazilian, and uh, you have really done a service for us up here, far away, for uh, sharing your perspective with us. Uh, it is Dr. Bernardo Sorge, um, a sociologist down in Rio de Janeiro during this very difficult weekend.